0: Today's scripture is Psalm 122. I rejoiced with those who said to me, Let's go to the Lord's house. Now our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city, joined together in unity. That is where the tribes go up, the Lord's tribes. It is the law for Israel to give thanks there to the Lord's name because the thrones of justice are there, the thrones of the house of David. Pray that Jerusalem has peace. Let those who love you have rest. Let there be peace on your walls. Let there be rest on your fortifications. For the sake of my family and friends, I say, Peace be with you, Jerusalem. For the sake of the Lord, our God's house, I will pray for your good. Holy wisdom, holy word.
1: Thanks, Candy. I've got a handful of announcements before we begin. Um, First, if you are able to stick around after church today, we've got another pop-up class. Remember, pop-ups are just kind of like little one-time workshops and conversations that are really cool, uh, really easy to attend, really easy to invite someone to, um, so it's just a one-time pop-up, and today the conversation is on coal. So we're talking about the history of coal, we're talking about the future, and uh, we have Gary and Jack that are gonna kind of weave and facilitate a conversation about that. So if that's an interest to you, if you care about uh, creation, if you care about environment, history, and moving forward, uh, go to that. It's in the Wesley room, which is downstairs. You'll see people milling into that room. I also want to offer another invitation. Um, me and, a, and a Lori Edwards and a handful of other lay leaders at our church have been trying to come up with a good framework for how our congregation can care for itself. Um, you know, regardless of age, any one of us is prone, I'm looking at Abby right now, any one of us is prone to slipping and breaking our leg or something, right? Um, And so I'm trying to help and work with our teams to brainstorm a way that we can care for each other. And so it's a a relatively simple um, framework, Um, but what I want to do is invite you, if you're not interested in the coal thing and you still want to stick around a little bit, uh, join me and a handful of other people in the fireside room downstairs, which you just go downstairs and just keep on walking. I'll try to stand out there and you can see me. And I'm just going to talk for a little bit, it should be a short meeting, about a framework for how we can care for our congregation. Uh, one of the ways that it works is by having not just one person that all rests on, but maybe a dozen, two dozen people that are just generally interested in knowing the answer to this question: Who's your neighbor? That—that's a relatively biblical principle for congregational care. Who's your neighbor? And I think for us that might be a really great place to get started, just by talking about literally uh, who are our neighbors, who, who's close to us, and. That might be something that we can do. So, if you're interested in that or the coal pop-up after church, head downstairs and we'll try to get people in the right rooms. Um. Also, let's make sure I got everything. This is the last Sunday of the month, which means that next Sunday is the first Sunday of the month. And on the first Sunday of the month, every first Sunday of the month, there's this great gathering called. Oh yeah. What did you? What did you say? Read preaching with the pastor. <laughs> Pastor with the pizza. Um, so if if you can, join me next Sunday for pizza with the pastor. Uh, this is a great chance for you to invite someone to come to church. Uh, they can, we can talk about anything, right? So there will be pizza. It'll be right here. So you don't have to go to another room. Uh, you don't have to stay for an hour. You can stay for five minutes if you want to ask uh, where the... Let's see, last month we talked about uh, the structure and the order of the book of Psalms. We talked about Celtic spirituality and Native American spirituality in the Puget Sound. We talked about where in the world I came from. Uh, we talked about some random things about John Wesley and uh, uh, Methodist history. So anything is, is fair game in these conversations. And again, pizza will be there, right? So don't leave me hanging. Come join me after church next Sunday for pizza with the pastor right here. Now, um, when I was a kid, I grew up in the South. And uh, I was a, a, a loyal, doesn't even begin to cut it. I, I, I'll use this word sparingly, but I'm going to use it now. Boy, I worshipped the 1996 Atlanta Braves. Okay. So I was, I was remember, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a kid growing up in Georgia in the South. Baseball is king, right? So baseball is everything. And, you know, I, I, I just fell into the cliche. Me and my friends would, you know, genuinely go to like a little park, every day and play pickup baseball and that's what I did and I remember I had um, when I was a kid the Atlanta Braves were just they just kind of ruled baseball and uh, I had all their like baseball pennants around my room for the consecutive years that they had won and I had this little tiny like baseball bat this sort of like souvenir bat that you get from a baseball game and I would use that to hit little tennis balls around my bedroom and I just I have such fond memories of spending like Hour after hour as a kid, just like playing through like home run scenarios just by myself, like last bitch and here comes Antilla. And boom, there you go, it's a home run. And then I would just do it again, right? Um, the home run scenario was, was one of the better ones. But my favorite, my favorite scenario to, to enact and the, the one that you would just, you would die for in an actual pickup game of baseball was the pickle. The pickle. Sometimes they just call it a rundown now. But the pickle, the pickle. This, this is the best essence of baseball right here. I need a couple of people to help me. Eric, do you want to help me? I need Mark. Do you want to help me? We're gonna, we're gonna do a little rundown here, okay? Just so we can see what happens. You're gonna be the pickle? I can be in the pickle?
0: Question. Do I have to be the pickle? You don't have to be
1: the pickle. So here, here you go down there. Okay. So I have a feeling this is not gonna work out, but we're gonna find out. So.
0: Sometimes
1: um, I can catch. Okay. Well. We're about to discover a lot of things right now. So, so I'm I'm here and I'm trying to get here, right? But you, I can't get out. Ready? So here's the pickle. Ready? <laughs> like I said. Yep. Safe. Safe. <laughs> that was probably the best it could have gone. That's exactly how. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That is exactly how baseball works. So, I'm okay, don't worry, I'm here. There's, a, there's caution tape up on the pews, I knew that was gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll rehearse it next time. If you're playing baseball, and you're a base runner, any of those bases, first, second, third, home, they're all safe, yeah? But if you're a base runner, you have one objective. What is it? To get home. It's not to get safe. Get home safe. safe. (laughs) What is one of the most like regular occurrences in baseball that you'll have the bases loaded, you'll have people on base, and then you end the inning. You strike out, and what happens with all your base runners? Done for. If If you're a base runner in baseball, Those bases are safe. They're they're safe places. But your goal is to run. You have to leave the base. You you absolutely have to. That's the point of the game. That's what makes the pickle so great, is it's happening right in front of you, and it's caught, and you see the determination of the person that knows they are trying to embody why they're a base runner right now. I've got to run. And then occasionally the pastor crashes into the pews, right? (laughs) The best pickle is when someone steals home, right? Because then you can actually get a point. And it's so audacious. It's so bold and so daring and so risky. And yet from time to time, it still happens. I remember when I was a kid, I got to watch people like Ricky Henderson, who was like a professional base stealer. That's all he did, right? Boom, stealing home. And it was just such a thrill to watch. Of course... It is inherently risky. Most coaches would tell someone, don't steal home. You're gonna get tagged, you're you're gonna get out. And yet people still steal bases, they still run the bases every single game. There is a risk that you're gonna get caught out. But it's a risk you, you have to take. We're talking a little bit about places of safety this morning. I'm wondering, um, where, do you, where do you feel safe, generally? Where, and actually, I'd love to know this. So, like, if you want to shout out, where do you feel safe? Like, where are places that you just feel really comfortable, really safe? At home. I was hoping for that. <laughs> I'm going to air five. That was perfect. Where else do you feel safe? What are places of safety for you? Church? Church? Yeah. Under a, tree. Under a tree. That's good. I like that. Where else do you feel safe? Theater? Yeah. Any theater, like the, like the Regal Cinema 12-Plex? That's the movie. Oh, the movie theater, yeah. The theater. A theater. Something about that environment feels safe for you? I think there's a lot of people that would disagree. They would say that feels threatening. Well, the, stage, that's the stage, yeah. Where else do you feel safe? My dad. Dad's house, that's a good one. Has he lived in that house for a long time? Okay. You feel safe in a city? Yeah. Okay. Out of the city. Out of the city. I knew that someone was gonna say that. <laughs> library. A library. What is it about the library that makes you feel safe? Sitting next to my husband. Sitting next to your husband. I would assume that many of us feel really safe next to parents, next to spouses, companions, family members. That's what I love about your response, Karen, is that you feel safe in your dad's house. But it's not—he's not like he's lived in that house for 50 years. It's the fact that it's it's your dad, right? (laughs) It's well heated. (laughs) As an experiment, I wanted to see what would happen if, um, if we even just tweaked our seating just a little bit on a Sunday morning. So I rubbed off this section right here, that section back there, and this section right here. Uh, some of you know this, but, like, raise your hand if you're sitting in a different spot this morning, like than you sat last Sunday. You are, Jeannie? There you go, a couple of people. This, this spot is heavy right here. This is great, right? Sorry, Catlin's a bump to you. It's remarkable how many places in our lives um, are locations where we can feel really safe. And yet places, and especially a place like this, like our church, is a place where I don't know if safety is actually the best word. Now, that's not saying I want bodily harm to come upon anyone, like a pastor crashing into the pews, right? But inherently, in the Christian journey, which this is a part of, this is our gathering here, I think one of the challenges that we rub up against is the desire or the need to want to feel safe. And for us as a church and for me as a pastor, I think one of the things that I can't promise is that this is a place where you'll always feel safe. I, we work, Lori and I work tirelessly to make sure that you're physically safe, that no one is injured, that our fire exits are clear. But we have different definitions of what it means to be safe, by which we often mean comfortable. Being a base runner on the base is really safe and comfortable. No one's gonna tag me out here. So I can't always promise you that this will be a place where you feel comfortable. I can promise you that you'll always be welcome though. That this is a place where we value community, and grace over our own comforts. I think about that when I read our text today, Psalm 122. We've been been going through a series looking at psalms that are songs of ascent, which are little tunes and chants and poems that families pass down generation after generation as you would literally make a trek to Jerusalem. These are road trip songs. I told you that the road to Jerusalem during these times of the year would often be something like you know, I-5 as people are heading south. Like you'd get, you'd get actual traffic. Some of the roads weren't actually that safe. In fact, there was a popular shortcut you could take through Jericho, the Jericho Road, which is where we get the stories like the Good Samaritan. Those were dangerous places to go, and so most people would try to stick to the really safe, clear paths. It might be slower, but you'll eventually get there. But it was still a relatively common thing that as you would travel in this time in history that it just wasn't safe. And yet really for a thousand something years pilgrims who were many many of them themselves very poor with limited means with lots of children and family members would make that journey to Jerusalem up to Jerusalem. Just try to imagine for a little bit what it would have been like. And maybe you can remember some of your own journeys in your life. We've been having people put up photos out on the wall of some of the journeys that you've been on. And I would imagine for most of us, we have been on a journey where we have kind of simultaneously felt like the thrill of it and also the fear of it, the great anxiety of it. Just think about some of those journeys in your own life. last week, I talked about mountains. And I said that in in Celtic spirituality, a mountain wasn't always a mountain. It could be representative of a different sort of season or challenge or hurdle in your life. And so I know that for many of us, when we talk about these journeys, there are also paths that we've headed down as an individual. Maybe it's um, a season with your partner or your spouse, a season with your kids. A season in your own health where you know this is going to involve a great amount of risk. Parents, you know you can't always play it safe. Boy, it sure would be easy if you could just never let the kids leave. But I don't need to tell you what that's like. You know it. I've never had a child But I can imagine, from the experiences of those that I love and care for, what it has been like when you hear that news for the first time, that you're going to be a parent. Think about what it was like to hold both of those, the thrill and the fear of it all. You're about to become a parent. You're about to become a parent. Anything is possible. And you know that it involves a great amount of risk. Getting married. Getting married is choosing risk. It is certainly much much safer to stay home, stay on base, to not leave, to not run, to not risk. But most of you chose against that. You chose to take the risk. I'm reminded time and time again that almost anything in our life that's worth having does not come easily. And if anything, it comes with great amounts of risk. More often than not, I'm actually convinced that that is the way of Christ. As a church, we talk often about what it means to be disciples of Christ, to be Christians, Christians, Christ followers. It's really easy to make that into a value-based model, that it means we talk the right talk. But the way of Christ is always a way of risk. It is one that places ourselves last and not first. It's where we give up our spot for others. The way of Christ is more often down than up. It more often than not looks like failure over success. And it is definitely dying so that new things can be born again. That is the mystery of Christ. Christian theologians call it the Pascal mystery. It's this idea that in the cross, in that theology, as great of a mystery as it is, as confusing as it is to us, you see something that just confounds our human logic. That you have to let things go in order for something new to be born again. When I was a kid, I... uh, would help my grandparents who ran a, a farm out in rural Idaho. And so we would when I lived in Georgia, we'd take trips out to help them. And then I moved to eastern Washington when I was thirteen and I would, you know, we'd take the three or four hour trip over to Idaho and help my grandparents. It is um deeply instilled in me that January and February, the 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 cold, bleak midwinter is a time of deep growth for the farmer. Now, we don't always see that from our windows and we look out at the soil and the fields. But for me, I I was taught at a young age that that's when the seeds really start to grow. When it is absolutely at its darkest point in the year, when it is most cold and most frigid, when everything dies if you leave it outside, that's when things actually grow the most. It's when the biggest change happens. And so for the farmer, they have to go through this season. Every year, it's a part of the rhythm of that life. That at some point, you have to take your seeds, you have to bury them in the dirt, and then you have to let go, knowing that many of them won't grow. Knowing that at this point, it's out of your hands. You can't control it. You have to let it go. And that's the only way that you can potentially even see something grow. I think about that in the context of this psalm. The first line, I was so happy when when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord to worship. Oh, I was so happy. It's that time of the year again. I was elated. I, I was so excited when I heard, I'm going to be a father. And then I realized I had to go to Jerusalem. You have to remember in this text, even in two lines, there's generations of cultural fear. Oh, I was so happy when they said it's that time of the year again. And shoot, it's that time of the year again. Notice what the, what the very next line is. The, the pilgrim The people literally going on a journey sing to each other. I was so glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And then verse 2, and now our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Peace. And now we're here. Oof, that was a close call. There's this um, juxtaposition that exists within all of these psalms. It's that the pilgrims make a trip every year, their entire lives. They do it with their family, with their kids, and as grandparents, time and time and time again, and yet they don't stay in Jerusalem. Do you catch that? The pilgrim in this song says, oh my goodness, I was so thrilled Thrilled we're finally going to Jerusalem again. It's that time of the year. This is what I live for. I'm so excited. I'm so happy. I'm not going to stay here though. My feet are finally within the walls of Jerusalem. Nothing can touch me. I'm so, so, so safe and happy. And yet the pilgrim leaves. The pilgrim leaves every year. They don't stay. Now Jerusalem, in Hebrew, that word uh, Yerusalem is literally just city or place of peace. It's a place where you can be at peace. But it's remarkable that woven in and through around all of that, nowhere is the expectation that you'll just all reside here. You'll never leave. Being on base is inherently safe. But you have to leave. You have to run. It's what you exist for. The pilgrim can go to Jerusalem, to the place of safety. But you need to go back to your communities. You need to go back to your friends. You need to go share what you've learned here with all of those who you're going to see on your journey back. Deeply embedded in Psalms like this is a lesson, an ancient lesson, that many of us, culturally, as Christians, as Americans, as people of privilege, have, have lost. Which is that for the pilgrim, a place like Jerusalem was not intended to meet any of your needs or wants. It existed to deepen them. And I believe that that is very much true for us today. A place like this, a place where many of us do feel safe, and many of us do feel comfortable, is not intended to meet all of our needs and wants. It is intended to deepen them. This is not supposed to be the place where we come and we say everything is perfect here and when I leave it's miserable out there. This is supposed to be the place where we come, gather together, everyone is welcomed, and through our words, through our songs, through our thinking, through our shared conversations, Together, we deepen what we are going to strive for and fight for as people, as people of faith. We deepen how we're going to take risks together, not for ourselves, but for the life of the world. This is the Pilgrim's Life. It is the Pilgrim's Journey. Yes, you can go to Jerusalem. And yes, your heart will be glad. I was so glad when that was that time again. Sunday's rolling around. I'm going to Jerusalem. My place of safety. But I'm not going to stay there. I'm not willing to just play the game only on base. Never running home. Letting the inning end and I'll just be on base. No, the pilgrim knows it's a part of that rhythm of life. To risk, to risk is single handedly the most dangerous thing that any of us face in our lives. It's so pervasive. Careers, family, relationships, faith. We're called to take risks. And I fundamentally believe that that is the way of Christ. I believe that's a part of the mystery of it all. And most importantly, I believe that that is what actually brings the most life. I don't need to sell it to the parents in the room. Was it worth the risk? Yes, it was. Was it difficult? Was it hard? Yes, it was. Was it worth the risk? Yes, it was. You did not play it safe. And for us as pilgrims in our own lives, in our own journeys, both together and individually, we need to learn how to hold well that rhythm of knowing that there will be places of safety, but that they're not called to meet all of our needs, but they're called to deepen what we care about and what we will fight for what we will risk, and what we will accomplish and achieve together. That's, that's the rhythm of this Christian life. I, I see that so squarely in something like a practice of communion. It has risk language embedded so deeply in it. We remember that Jesus gathered together with his followers, people who are trying to follow his way of life. Many of which who probably said, like, I've been scribbling down notes, I've got it all pretty much figured out. To which Jesus simply responds, great, keep running. Don't stay on base. He breaks The bread saying so this is my body and you have said you're a part of my body I've said you're a part of my body let's break this simply cannot be shared if it doesn't break so do this in remembrance of me you have to take the risk likewise he takes a cup and he gives thanks for it A cup of wine or a juice of a fruit that has to be what? It has to be crushed. Same as the wheat. Crushed in order to get anything. It has to be completely just let go of in order to ferment. you got to take the risk. I imagine a family having their, like, one-year vintage of wine. Corked up in the barrel. And they've just left it. It's just waiting. There's a chance it might not actually turn out all that well. They're just going to wait. And here it is, and they offer it. In the same way, Christ says to so do this. Drink, offer, risk. Do this in the name of me. Be, drink for the world. I'd like to invite our communion service to come forward. And in a, in a minute, I want to invite... Any of you who are willing to come forward and receive. Uh, communion is a sacrament, meaning that it is an outward expression, something physical that you can sink your hands and your teeth into. But that re- represents a deeper spirituality or spirit going on within you. An outward sign of an inward spirit. And if you are at all like me, Maybe it might be healthy for you today, as you come forward to receive, to confess that this is a bit of a risk. This doesn't secure safety by any means. If anything, it's challenging you, challenging us to break and to be an offering for the world. But I believe that is a risk worth taking.